Well, I was on a plane headed back to D.C., and the lady next to me was excited. She and her husband were traveling to D.C. for the first time. This was a long-planned vacation, and she was, in great enthusiasm, beginning to explain to me as we struck up a conversation their plans over the next few weeks. They were going to be at a hotel north of D.C., spend a good bit of time there. She pointed out on a map all the different sites that they were planning to go to. This was a vacation they had intended on for years, and now it had arrived. So she was enthusiastic, and she was glad to meet me when I told her that I was a resident of D.C. Now, I, I was sick. I was not feeling very well. Tried to do my best not to cough on her while we were having a conversation. And after she had spent quite a bit of time explaining to me her vacation and me pointing out a few things about D.C., I did the socially appropriate thing. I pulled out my magazine, started to flip through, you know, beginning to indicate I'm about to do my thing and you do your thing. And we essentially started to not talk to each other, just do our own thing for the rest of the flight. Well, I would say on that afternoon as we were flying back, to D.C., I was a lousy evangelist. What makes for a lousy evangelist? What are the conversations you've had, even in this unusual era of COVID-19, in, in trying to testify to the truth of Christ? And what does that look like in your life? Well, in the first century, Christians faced enormous persecution, and you'd expect them to be shy in the face of so much opposition. Yet, we're going to see today the Apostle Paul offers for us a startling example. We're in the book of Acts, so if you want to turn there with me, we're going to be in chapter 26. We're looking at the rise of the church in the first century after the life of Christ. The disciples of Christ travel all around modern-day Israel, Turkey, and Italy, giving witness to Christ and calling many unbelievers to faith in Christ and even dying for Christ. That's essentially the first 20 chapters, but around chapter 20 on, the camera slows down and it focuses on the Apostle Paul. Paul, from chapter 20 on, has to defend himself a number of times before governors and Roman officials. So as we zoom in today on yet another situation where Paul must defend himself and fight for his own life, we're going to listen and hear what Paul will teach us. Derek Thomas, pastor and author, says this, Luke is saying to us, Watch how the apostle engages in his defense and learn from it. You too may find yourself in similar circumstances, called to the witness of the gospel when your life or the life of others depends on it. These are the lessons you must learn. Well, Paul is going to make a defense for his life. The Jews are persecuting him, wanting him dead. And so for a third time... Paul has a chance to defend himself, and yet what we'll see that his defense turns quickly into a testimony for the gospel. Looking at Paul's example, we're going to learn that we need to be rakes for a good evangelist, the circumstances are. So here's the question I want to consider today. What makes for a good evangelist, especially when circumstances are hard? Here's our outline for today. A good evangelist is number one, expects opposition, that's verses 1 to 11. Number two, testifies to the truth in Christ. And number three, speaks with boldness. 
So number one, expects opposition. That's verses 1 to 11. Number two, testifies to the truth in Christ. That's verses 12 to 23. And number three, speaks with boldness. That's verses 24 to 32. So in three words, our sermon is opposition, testify, and boldness. Opposition, testify, and boldness. Now, we're jumping into chapter 26, so I want to give you a little bit of background to just catch us up to the scene we're about to enter into. There's two characters that Paul is going to interact with. The first one is Governor Festus, who is the Roman procurator from A.D. 55 to 60. He was known to be a fair and reasonable man, and he's famous for having eventually sent Paul on to Rome to stand trial before the emperor. The other is Agrippa, and Agrippa arrives to have a conversation with Festus. Uh, just to remind you who Agrippa is, and he is the seventh and last of the Herodian dynasty that ruled over Israel. So it was Agrippa's great-great-grandfather, Herod the Great, that ordered the killing of all the male children in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Now, Agrippa's father, Agrippa I, died when he was only 17. Now, I've brought a couple of my teenagers with me. I don't know if you have teenagers, but at age of 17, I wouldn't have my teenagers ruling over an entire kingdom. I don't know about you, but they determined that he was not mature enough to hold his father's post. So what they did is they took the young Agrippa, gave him a more manageable region to manage alongside the title of, put in quote, king. And as they were clearly friends, Agrippa the second had come to pay a visit to Governor Festus. Now, look with me at chapter 25 for just a moment. I want to just point out a few things in chapter 25, what we see here. Verse 15, the Jews wanted Paul dead, so they demanded a sentence of condemnation against Paul. That would have short-circuited everything and led to Paul's chance to defend himself. Now, here's Governor Festus's predicament. Verses 18 and 19, the Jewish accusers brought charges that were, in Festus' own words, you see that there, about their religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but who Paul asserts to be alive. In other words, the accusations were all theological in nature. There was no violation of Roman law. And then verse 20, not knowing how to investigate these theological questions, Festus offered Paul to be tried in Jerusalem, the Jews' home turf. So that was like taking someone who's in the federal branch of the U.S. government and sending him back to the lower courts. To face trial in Jerusalem would have been imminent death for Paul. But to protect himself, Paul makes an appeal to, as a Roman citizen, to go before Emperor Caesar. Rather than being referred to a lower court, Paul makes an appeal to face the highest court of the land. Now look at verse 22. Agrippa hears all of this and asks to hear Paul himself, and Festus agrees. Verse 23 to 27, Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus enter with great pomp to a gallery of military figures and prominent men of the city. Now this is going to be Paul's audience. Now, this is going to be important later on because it's not just Paul and Agrippa and Festus. There's an entire gathering that he's speaking to of officials from all over the city. Verse 24, Festus explains how the Jews have petitioned that Paul should no longer live. Verse 25, amazingly, 
Festus declares Paul's innocence, but Paul appealed to the emperor. So you see there, verse 26 and 27, Festus needed to indicate a charge against Paul when he sends him on to the emperor. So Paul was going to be examined yet again, this time in the presence of Agrippa. That sets up the scene for today. The physician, Luke, is looking at Paul's life, his defense against these accusers. He's holding up his life as an example to us of what it means to be a faithful witness to Christ. So how can you be a good evangelist? A good evangelist, number one, expects opposition. That's verses 1 to 11. Let's read that together. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Well, look with me there at verse 1. Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak, and Paul stretches out his hand, which indicates he's going to make his defense. This is technically not a legal defense, but a way to satisfy Agrippa's curiosity about Paul. Then you see there, verses 2 and 3, Paul articulates that it is fortunate that Agrippa, a Jew himself who is familiar with Jewish beliefs and practices, available to hear Paul's defense. Verse 4 to 5, here is Paul's first offense against the Jewish accusations. Paul is identifying with the Pharisees, both in the way he previously lived, that's verses 4 to 5, and then in the way he opposed Christ, that's verses 9 to 11. And in verse 4 to 5, the Jews have known for a long time, and if they're willing to testify, that since his youth, Paul lived as a Pharisee. It's as if we're saying, Paul was saying to all those gathered, these Jews who are opposing me, well, guess what? Guess what? I was one of them. I, in fact, was one of them. I was a Pharisee. And Paul was not just any Pharisee. The apostle was part of the strictest party of Pharisees. 
Then look there, verses 9 to 11. As a strict and zealous Pharisee, Paul himself was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Paul says, I myself am convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Christ. And he did so. This is another part of Paul's defense against the Jews. It's as if Paul were saying, these Jews who are opposing me, guess what? Guess what? I persecuted Christians just like they are doing to me right now. Paul was one of the chief persecutors of first century Christians. After getting permission from the chief priest, he locked up many of the believers in prison. He voted to put many of them to death. He tried to make them blaspheme, which means he tried to get them to renounce their faith. And in raging fury, he even tracked them down to foreign nations. As a persecutor, you get the sense that Paul was determined to wipe out the Christian side. Do you know what this is? This is Christian genocide. Paul's determined to kill off the Christians. Now, there are 200 million, Christ 200 million Christians today who live in countries where they face high level of persecutions. That's one in eight Christians worldwide. I, like you, have probably seen videos where Christians have been beheaded by ISIS soldiers. And I have several friends in India right now who have faced bombings in their churches and their Bibles have been burned. And now we have, you know, the privilege this morning of having a pastor and his family with us from China. And there are many Christians in China who have faced being hauled into the police or all kinds of persecution by Chinese government officials. Christians all around the world face persecution, face beatings, are killed for their faith. It's real, and we cannot deny the truth of it. Well, if you evangelize, you should expect opposition. If you don't expect opposition, you should. We're in a day and age where the culture has grown antagonistic towards Christianity. So if you tell your neighbor about your faith, you should expect him to think you're ridiculous for believing the gospel. Or some of your children, as they grow up and they head on to college, you shouldn't be surprised that if their professor finds out that your son or daughter is a Christian, that they will mock them or scorn them for believing the truth of the gospel. It will require more courage for you to stand up for your faith. In, in a day and age where there are winds of opposition that go against Christianity. What's that going to require of you? It's going to require more courage as a Christian to speak out for the gospel, to speak out for Christ. Do you have courage to stand up for your faith? The striking thing about these verses is that Paul's defense is, hey... I used to be just like them. I myself was opposed to Christ. I hated Christians. I destroyed. I mocked. I killed believers. But we're just like Paul, aren't we? Before you became a Christian, all of us at one time opposed Christ. We all rebelled against Him. We lived our own way and opposed God's way. And maybe you don't consciously think, well, I, I didn't hate God, but you showed it with your life. 
in the way you lived for yourself and you didn't live for God, in the way that you self-righteously lived for the things that you wanted in this life. You selfishly chose to live the way you wanted to live in this life and you didn't live for God. Before you self-righteously, though, look down on Paul and think, man, he was bad, wasn't he? Christian genocide. Look at all the Christians he was killing. Recognize we are just like Paul. Now, in a room with this many people, we've got to recognize that a few of you might even be able to say, well, I'm more like Paul than you realize. When I wasn't a Christian, I actually mocked and hated Christians. I made fun of them. I belittled them. I'm the one who scorned them. Here's the beauty of the gospel. God came. Most despicable of you persecutors. He came to rescue the most despicable of sinners. The grace of God extends to each one of us. The very ones who were against God, the Lord sent His Son to die for. The very ones who oppose God, God came to rescue and become a part of His kingdom. To move them from darkness to the kingdom of His Son. And if, if that's you, if that's you this morning, be grateful. Be grateful that you can say to God, I once was opposed and now I'm a part of your kingdom. I once hated you, and now I'm a part of your family. Glory be to God, if that's one of you, that, that God has brought you now to be a part of His family. Rejoice and give thanks to God for that. Well, evangelists should expect opposition. Not only does Paul identify with the Pharisees in the way he used to live, that's verses 4 to 5, and in the way he opposed Christ, that's verses 9 to 11, but look at the verses right in between, verses 6 to 8. Look at what he says. You see, this is Paul's second defense, that the Jews opposed him because of his belief in the resurrection. But what Paul is going to show is that the Jews were being inconsistent because they too believed in the resurrection from the dead. Verse 6 to 7, Paul is standing on trial because of the hope in the promise made by God to the Israelite fathers. That is, the hope that the 12 tribes of Israel hoped to attain. The hope that the Israelites earnestly worship day and night. And what is that hope? Look at verse 8. The hope is that God raises the dead. The resurrection, that God raises the dead. Now, the Old Testament teaches about this resurrection hope. Now, surely the Israelites had recounted the countless times the resurrection of the widow of Zarephath's son by Elijah had occurred. Or later on, the widow of Nain's son by Elisha had occurred. Or surely they had spoken of Daniel 12.2 or Isaiah 26.19 where the prophets speak of resurrection. What Paul is arguing that it is inconsistent for the Jews to persecute him for putting hope in Jesus' resurrection. The Jews believed in the resurrection, though they hated Jesus. Christ's resurrection was the fulfillment of all the resurrections of the Old Testament. That's what Paul is telling us. This resurrection hope is the hope that the Israelite fathers were looking forward to. Now, later on, if you want to, this afternoon, you can look at Acts 13, verses 32 to 37, where Paul makes the same point about the hope of the resurrection of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. Or like in Psalm 1610, where the psalmist says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
Now, uh, I wonder what it was like to be a Kansas City Chiefs fan at the beginning of the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl this past year. Now, some of you immediately smile and know what I mean. You know, what was it like for a fan after your team is 10 points behind the, the San Francisco 49ers and, and being dominated for three quarters? What's it like for a fan to sit there at the beginning of the fourth quarter when no other team has really pulled out the fourth quarter like the Kansas City Chiefs did? What's it like to wonder, can my team actually pull this off? Can my quarterback win this game? Should we stay for the fourth quarter? After all, we paid all this money to come to this game. Do I actually have hope as a fan? I believe as fans that their team really has... Are they going to pull it off? Do they believe as fans that their team really has what it takes to pull this out in the fourth quarter? Well, contrast that with the Christian hope. The Jews' hope in the great resurrection was fulfilled in Jesus. Paul is saying to the Israelites, he's looking back, and he's saying, you know what? The fourth quarter already happened. You know what? Jesus did rise from the dead. The thing that you're looking forward to, you, you're stuck in the third quarter. The thing you're looking forward to, he's looking back and saying, Jesus rose from the dead. Guess what? We won. We were victorious. Jesus conquered death. So Paul's looking back and declaring to the Jews the resurrection of Jesus Christ has already occurred. You're being inconsistent and your hope needs to be in Jesus because he rose from the dead. And yet, look at verse 23. Paul doesn't just look back, he also looks forward. Verse 23, he says, Christ is the first to rise. Why is that important? Well, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that one day you and I will also rise from the dead. It's, it, it is a guarantee that on that final day when all the dead rise, and you know, for those of you who have those freaky zombie movies in your mind, forget about those zombie movies. The, the, the final day will be nothing like that. When all the dead rise and, and, and those who have trusted in Christ will go to be with Him. So Christ rising from the dead is the guarantee on the final day that we also will be with him. That is our hope, the resurrection of the dead. And I look forward to that day when we get to be with Christ for all of eternity. If we rise with him at the end, we will all get to be with him. Now, I have to admit, after 14 weeks of not gathering with a congregation, it was really sweet to hear your voices. It was just really sweet to hear your voices as a congregation together gathered. And it reminds us of the privilege of even gathering, that we just can't take that for granted. Now, just picture in your mind all of God's people gathered together, the great throng in eternity, all singing together. We won't need no accompaniment on the fourth verse. We will all be able to sing without piano gloriously to the Lord. And the fact that Christ rose from the dead guarantees that we will be there together, singing together and enjoying glory together with the only thing that will matter at that point, which is worshiping God for all of eternity. 
Well, we've seen that evangelists should expect opposition, but also, and this is our second point, that they should testify to the truth of Christ. That's verses 12 to 13. Let's read that together, verses 12 to 13. In, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must to our people and to the Gentiles. Look at verse 12. With the authority and commission of the chief priests, Paul travels to Damascus to persecute Christians. But what happens instead is that Christ gives Paul a new commissioning. Verse 13 and 14, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone around them, and they were knocked to the ground, and a voice said to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, the goad is a sharp stick used to prod an animal, like when an ox is going off track and needs to be prodded to go in the right direction. Uh, the driver would use the goad to keep the oxen in line. Well, Jesus is telling Paul, it's hard for you to resist God's will for your life. It's doomed to failure. The other thing the voice from heaven said is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting believers? Why are you persecuting me? Me? Verse 15. Paul then asks, who are you, Lord? And the voice responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When Paul persecuted the believers in the first century, he was persecuting Jesus himself. They were one and the same. Jesus so closely identifies with his own children, he uses the words, me. Isn't that remarkable how closely your Savior identifies with you? He, he's not some distant deity in the sky. Isn't it remarkable how closely he associates with his own children that he uses the word me? The king of the universe personally identifies with you. And then verse 16. Herein begins the commissioning service. 
Jesus tells Saul to rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Jesus says three things. You see there, verse 16, the first thing. Jesus is commissioning Saul to anoint him as a servant and a witness of what Saul has seen Jesus already do and what he will see as do. The second thing, verse 17, Jesus will del- deliver Saul. And then the third thing, verse 17 and 18, Jesus is sending Saul to open their eyes. What Jesus means by opening their eyes is spelled out in verses 19 to 23. Look there, verse 20. Paul declared that they should repent and turn to God, living lives in keeping with their repentance. And then in verse 23, that Christ must suffer, that being the first to rise from the dead, Jesus would proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Paul defends himself in front of Agrippa, Governor Festus, and the Jewish leaders. And the great throng of the people gathered. He at the same time testifies to the truth of Christ. Now, in the midst of his defense, he gives them the gospel. He calls them to repent of their sins and and to put their faith in Christ. Look there at verse 20. Paul called the Jews to repent. Now, to repent is to turn your back on your sins, to turn away from your sins and to turn to Christ. It's rejecting and renouncing your sins. Paul says that they are to not only to repent, but to live a life where their deeds are in keeping with their repentance. Now, for some of you, this is going to be really important to hear this morning. Your life needs to be reexamined because you're not performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. What does that mean? Say my wife and I get into an argument And I apologize to her because I said something mean to her, and I need to apologize to her. I am genuinely sorry, and I say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But guess what happens afterwards? My bad attitude conveys, it it makes it really clear that, you know what? I really wasn't that sorry. That that my attitude that's conveyed not only that afternoon, but for the rest of the day, makes it clear that I really wasn't that repentant of my sins. Well, well, I wonder if that's the case for you. I wonder if you've ever experienced the same thing. You, you said sorry, but your attitude afterwards really made it clear that you really didn't repent, or at least it's hard to, hard to really see that you did genuinely repent. Maybe you, you, you hopefully meant it, but your heart then is revealed. I wasn't really that sorry after all. In fact, uh, as it's, as my life as it is, seen the rest of the afternoon shows my deeds were not in keeping with my repentance. Now, kids, I wonder if you can relate to this at all. Now, have you ever picked a fight with your siblings? Or maybe you are much more godly than any of the other children I know. If you've ever had a fight with your siblings or picked a fight with your parents and then said you're sorry, and yet, you know what, what, what happened the next hour or two really communicated whether you were sorry or not? whether your deeds were in keeping with your repentance and your regret. When you repent, you genuinely need to turn from your sins. You need to reject those sins, turn away from them. Your actions afterwards are evidence whether your repentance that you profess is genuine. Are your deeds consistent with your words of repentance? Now, verse 22 and 23, the other thing we read about here is faith. Paul speaks 
to both Jews and Gentiles alike, telling them that the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Christ. Or as we said earlier, that Christ will rise from the dead, so also guaranteeing that those who trust in Christ will also rise with him. This is a wonderful hope that we know as the gospel. If you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, your life will go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And shocking, isn't it, that Satan, the great liar and the evil one, has people under his grip. That's the way he rules this world. Satan likes to have people under his grip. And so when we say, I hate my sin, I no longer want it, I, I, I turn from it, and I turn to him. You're moving from the kingdom of darkness, and you're moving from the kingdom of light. You're transported from the realm of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. That's our glorious hope, isn't it? That, that's the hope that we all profess, that if we trust in Christ, he will make us one of his own. You know, there's probably someone here today who says, that's too good to be true. I'm just too messed up for this to be possible for my life. What, what you're describing to me can't be possible for me. Well, if that's you, then this is probably the best news you've heard in a couple of months. That this is true also for you. There is no one, no one that's beyond God's grace. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we too can become one of His children. So the opportunity is there for you today to turn from your sins and trust in Him. There is no one so messed up that they're beyond God's grasp. What good news that, is that for us? That there is hope for each one of us no matter how far gone we think we are. Now, we've seen that good evangelists expect opposition and that they also testify to the truth in Christ. One last point. Point three, good evangelists speak with boldness. Look with me at those last few verses, verses 24 to 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows that these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, verse 24, Governor Festus interrupts Paul, accusing him of being out of his mind. He says, he's crazy. And then verse 25, Paul refutes Festus, saying, 
I am speaking true and rational words. Now, interesting, Paul attempts to persuade Agrippa of the truth. And in front of this great throng of people, he's now going to press Agrippa. The text says in verse 26, to him I speak boldly. Paul's life is on the line. His life is literally on the line. And yet he's willing to courageously exhort the king with the truth of the gospel. Now, I want you to imagine your favorite president of the last 50 years, even the last 100 years. Just go ahead, pick whatever your favorite president is, Bush or Reagan or Clinton or Ford or whoever your favorite president is. Now, picture that president in your mind. Now, now surround him with all of the non-Christians in your life, just all the unbelievers you know. Put them all in the same room. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to make an appeal in front of all these people to the president and all these non-Christians about the truth of the gospel. You need to explain to this gathering, which is this gathering in front of Paul, about the truth of Christ's death and resurrection. You need to be bold. And, you know, if you were like me, I'd say, well, gosh, I would be a nervous wreck. I would barely get any words out of my mouth. I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't explain to them clearly and succinctly about the truth of Christ? Well, Paul's valiant in his efforts to hold out Christ. Verse 27, he says to Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. It would have been embarrassing for the king to be persuaded by a prisoner in chains and admit in front of him and this great audience that he was beginning to believe or even trust what Paul was saying. So verse 28, not surprisingly, Agrippa puts him off. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And as if that boldness wasn't enough, Paul expands his appeal to everyone in the room. Look at verse 29. He says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day would become such as I am, except for these chains. Now go back to that situation I asked you envision a moment ago. Now you're saying to the entire room, to everyone gathered, you're saying to every person in that room, to all the non-Christians, I want you all to believe. You're saying to an entire audience of non-Christians, I want you all to believe. Could you do that? Just take a moment and think about it. Put your life on the line in front of all those Christians. No matter how much people would mock you, maybe for days or months or years afterwards, are you willing to overcome the fear of man in that moment and speak out for the truth of Christ? Bold, isn't it? In our evangelism, it's awkward enough to tell one person, let alone an entire room of non-Christians, about the truth of Christ. Paul sets an example, a startling example, of what it looks like to be a good evangelist. He, he, he's... He's not concerned for his own well-being. He wants to tell all of them about the truth of Christ. Are you bold enough to speak just like Paul? The strength will not come from something miraculous within you. But even this comes from Christ. Christ will help you to be courageous and bold. So we turn to a Savior who gives us the strength even in those moments to speak out on behalf of Him. 
But you be bold and trust that Christ will give you the strength to speak up and leave the rest to the Lord. So we should conclude. Evangelism is hard for many of us, but it is not impossible. Remember, good evangelists expect opposition, testify to the truth that is in Christ, and speak with boldness. Let's ask Christ to give us the strength to be good witnesses in our own very lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we know, we know there's so many things that get in the way of us being good evangelists. But we know that with your strength, with the help that you provide us, we can testify to the truth of your life. So we ask you to help us this very day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.